1: Welcome to The Happy Vagina, where we shame us thoughts and feelings around all things sex, sexual health, gender and body judgment. We share honestly about our experiences so you can do the same, leading to better health, better sex and better lives. I'm Mika Simmons. And today on The Happy Vagina, I am absolutely honoured to be speaking to the super talented actor, Charlie Condu. Charlie, welcome to The Happy Vagina.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: I'm so excited that this season is including some of my favourite males. Charlie, you've not only had a successful career on TV, you're also, in my opinion, someone who really bravely has used their platform to campaign for LGBTQI rights and to transform public opinion on same-sex parenting. You actively co-parent to delicious young people, Hal and Georgia, with your right. husband. Cameron, and your, and your friend and actress, Catherine Cantered, Charlie, you are an amazing human being. How, yeah. <laughs> Thank how, how are you feeling today?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm all right, actually. I've been, uh, you know, locked down. I think we're all sort of feeling the same way. Slightly had enough of it, but, um, but yeah, I'm all right.
1: I'm so excited to hear about everything that's been going <laughs> on. But before we drop into it, we are going to have to start with the Happy Vagina quiz. Okay, I great. Are you ready?
2: Yes, I'm absolutely ready.
1: Are you any good at quizzes, Charlie? No, <laughs>
2: I'm really competitive, so so um, I want to win, even though I'm not actually competing against anyone.
1: Are, are you competitive?
2: Yeah, I'm really competitive. My <laughs> it's pathetic.
1: I would never have said that of you from the little I know you, but um, uh,
2: only oh. only on games and things like that.
1: Okay, yeah. okay, got it. I'm I'm hopeless at pub quizzes. I've been really enjoying seeing everyone else. Okay, question one. Playboy magazine's reputation was built on a story about homosexuality. Um, I w- well, I would say true. It is true. Is it? It's absolutely true, yeah. The year was 1955 and science fiction author Charles, Charles Beaumont had crossed the line with his latest story, The Crooked Man, which depicted a dystopian future where homosexuality was the norm and heterosexuality was outlawed. And angry anti-straight mobs march through the streets chanting, make our city clean again. Wow. So no one, even a squire, wouldn't publish it. And Beaumont found a, a fan in the young Hugh Hefner who agreed to run it in Playboy magazine, which was less than two years old at the time. Um, everyone was outraged and letters poured in to try and pull it. And Hugh Hefner absolutely refused. And it really raised the profile of, of, of Playboy. So- kind of
2: ironic that a, a, a magazine that's aimed at Straight men <laughs> was the one that was the one that published the story
1: yeah, not only aimed at straight men but but you could you could argue it was incredibly sexist as well right, like right, yeah the way that he he was a real advocate for gay rights I mean he often really? um yeah really campaigned in terms of government level for for equality but um seemed seemed to to think that women were objects so <laughs> yeah I'm sure there's a bigger um, story there anyway, you got that one right question two okay, good. the 1987 hit. Three Men and a Baby, was an original screenplay.
2: I mean, obviously that's before my time. Um, <laughs> but, uh, an original screenplay. Uh, no, I'm going to say that's false.
1: Oh, it is false. You're really good at this. You said you're no good. It's actually a remake of a French film, Three Men and a Cradle, Trois Hommes et un coffee? It, which was a 1985 French comedy, which I've got to say I think that the um, that the storyline was actually a little bit more exciting. There were three men living in a flat, and one of them was an air steward and went away to travel and said that a package was going to be left with his two housemates. The package was actually heroin. Oh! But the baby turns up from an ex-girlfriend, and they. Oh. <laughs> so it was a slightly darker storyline. Question three. In September 2020, relationship education will become compulsory in all UK schools, primary schools in all UK schools.
2: Primary schools. schools. I thought it was already compulsory. Um, But if I'm wrong, then I will say that is true.
1: It is true. And you might be right. And I may not have the right statistics. But from all the reading I've done from September 2020, the relationship education is compulsory teaching pupils that different types of families exist. This means that the next generation will attend schools and not only accept LGTB people and same sex relationships, but also celebrate and offer support on the issues that young LGTB people face. So it's a, you know, it's a great step forwards. But you, do you, have your children been taught that already in school, Charlie?
2: Yes, uh, well, I mean, they do. I'm, I'm actually a governor, a school governor as well, so I do know a bit about this stuff. Um, but yes, they are taught it, and um, I know there was a, there was that huge kind of fuss in a Birmingham school last year about teaching all this. It's, it's always age appropriate, and I think people need to remember that mm. is, you know. They start off by just talking to people about different types of family and about love, essentially. They don't go into details about sex or any of that kind of stuff until much, much later when, when children are old enough to understand that. So yeah, I think it's really important that they, they know that different types of families exist, of course, because that's a reflection of the world that we live in
1: maybe the maybe the thing that's changing is that it's compulsory so maybe it's been down to whether or not the school wants to or not and now it's compulsory yeah anyway you got that one right too you're you're heading for a fast five out of five charlie which i can tell no one's got on the happy vagina
0: you'll
1: be like that going to the pub when they reopen. going excuse me excuse me (laughs) (laughs) i don't want to be on my team (laughs) okay question four the term heterosexuality and homosexuality didn't exist in Shakespeare's England.
2: Oh, now I think that's false.
1: It's true. They didn't.
2: Neither
1: word existed. And interestingly, um, so homosexuality was illegal and heterosexuality was not defined. However, it was absolutely the only way that you were allowed to be. And and of course, you'll know, kind of, there was still a very strong, bond between same-sex friendships. So in a way, even though homosexuality was illegal, if you read the letters between men or between women of that time, you actually yeah. see that the way that people were allowed to relate to each other within friendships was in a much more loving sexual way. So it was mm-hmm. a really interesting kind of dichotomy where they almost didn't define things in the same way.
2: And also I believe that um same-sex relations between men were illegal but between women they weren't because they just didn't believe that women did that kind of thing.
1: I did not so, know that.
2: <gasps> yeah, Apparently, don't quote me on that um, but that's what I, I, I think that was uh, Queen Victoria who didn't believe that women could fall in love with each other.
1: Oh really didn't she now? Okay so you've got one wrong, you're three out of five. I always forget to give the um the score but I'm, I'm for some reason I'm on it today. Okay last question. In 2019, a Greek woman gave birth to a baby boy using a controversial technique that combines DNA from three people.
2: Wow. Well, I'm going to have to say true, but it sounds really bizarre.
1: It is true. Amazingly, it's true. So the boy was born on the 9th of April to a 32-year-old woman in, in Greece who had a history of multiple IVF failures and poor egg quality so she was deemed infertile and they use this technique which was actually developed to help people who had mitochondrial disease so there's a little bit of controversy around whether or not it this technique should be being used for people who are not able to to get to to, to get pregnant naturally so it's um there's some arguments going on for me i feel like science has been given to us by the universe and mm-hmm. if if science allows us to make things happen, then why would we not do it to help people have the biggest life that they sure. can have?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, certainly IVF is something that's a relatively new thing. And, and without it, I wouldn't have children now.
1: You certainly wouldn't. Charlie? You got four out of five. Congratulations. I'll take the congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> so you just mentioned about your experience with IVF. Before we come to talk about co-parenting, mm. which is the thing that I'm super excited to hear about today, I, I would, I've would i known you for a long time, and I would suggest that today it is easier to be an advocate and a campaigner for gay rights. Mm. I actually think it's a different landscape to when you started, and mm. I would like you just to share with us a little bit about what it was like for you I mean you you came out at quite a young age but what was it like for you when the ignition changed when you decided to not just be open about being a gay man but also to start championing it as a cause to for change
2: Yeah it was it was was it a conscious decision yes partly it was I I I've always wanted to be a dad and I've always known that and I and I knew that when I came out in my in my teens um I knew that it would be slightly more complicated for me. But I I always thought that this would happen. In fact, I remember having two quite important conversations, one with my sister, who is 10 years older than me, and one with Kathy Burke, who is a very, very old friend of mine, uh, around having children. I was very young at the time in my 20s. And both of them said the same thing to me, which was, if you want to have kids, have kids, don't let anything stand in your way certainly not your sexuality um and that that really stayed with me because it changed the way that I started to talk about it so I didn't I stopped saying if I have children I started saying when I have children and just having that in my head made a big difference in fact Kath is now Hal's godmother um because I wanted to kind of celebrate that she was part of the reason that I I became a parent um and so I always knew that it was slightly more complicated and I started to think about how I might do it. Now, adoption was very difficult in those days, certainly for a single gay man as I was then. Um, IVF wasn't even, I mean, it was in in its embryonic stages, excuse the pun, um, and co parenting wasn't something that anybody had heard of. So I I just didn't really know what it was that I was going to do. But I did think, well, maybe the thing that makes most sense is to have children with a friend of mine of course in my naivety thinking of course loads of loads of girlfriends of mine will want to do that they'll they'll want to have kids with their gay friend because who wouldn't um it turns out a lot of people don't want don't see their life going down that that road um but Catherine did and 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 that was how we got there but at the time um I we we just had Georgia and I went into Coronation Street, and I was in Coronation Street for about five years, and so I had a profile. And I had realised that when I was growing up, there was nobody doing what I was doing. Um, I mean, I think gay women have always sort of quietly got on and and had children because it's much easier for women to have children. Um, But gay men sort of, if they wanted to become parents, they either got married to a woman or into a relationship with a woman and went down that lie, or they sort of parked it because there wasn't really – there didn't seem to be any ways of doing it. I'm generalising, of course. I'm sure I wasn't the first gay man to have children, but generally speaking, it wasn't part of the conversation. So when I started having children and and going down the kind of route that I went down – and i found myself with a with a a public profile suddenly i thought i'm going to be that person that talks about this i'm going to do it because i want people to know that Gay people can have children just like normal people, you know, <laughs> just like we can get married now. and But it was very much around that time when when suddenly it felt like it was time for gay rights to move on. Yes, we could walk down the streets together and hold hands and we were generally accepted, but we still didn't really have equal marriage and we weren't really having families. And it just felt like, okay, it's time to, to step it up a bit. And I, so I went to um, The Guardian. Uh in fact it was Kath Viner who is now the editor, but she wasn't at the time. But I I had met her uh, socially. And I just thought, oh well, I can just get in touch with the Guardian and ask if they'll give me a column, because you know, that's what you can just do that. <laughs> kind of I thought it would be that easy. Uh but actually it was. Um and and they were like, okay, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Let's let's go for it. So I had a weekly column in the in the family section on on Saturdays the 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 Saturday Guardian that ran for about a year mm. and I, every week i would talk about my experiences of being a parent being a gay man as a parent being a co-parent and all the logistics and how that stuff was working and and it feels very much like now 10 years later almost the conversation has changed. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's down to me, although I do think partly I had a small part to play in that, just by being so vocal about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because now younger gay men, and I, I and I'm saying gay men because I said gay women, I think it's it it has generally been been easier to have children. A lot of gay men will now have that conversation when they get into relationships, even if they don't want to have children. They Will still say, but I don't want to have kids. Do you want to have kids? No, you don't either. Let's not have kids. But it's there; it's talked about. Mm. Whereas when I was growing up, you just didn't talk about having mm. children. It wasn't mm. It wasn't an option, I suppose.
0: Mm. And now
1: all
2: the gays are doing it. Elton and David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, and I and actually, I do. I did. I don't know whether you told me once or I read it somewhere that one of your greatest fears around when you were much younger and realising that you were a gay young man, that you wouldn't have children. So you've really, um, you know, you've really you've really made your dreams come true. You've mentioned mm-hmm. that it's easier for women. And of course, the biological side of it makes it easier for women. I would propose that also um, people don't question as much when they, it's not just about the biological. If you see two women with a small child, whether it be a baby all the way through to whatever age, where the child still needs the care of the parents, you think that's two female friends looking after a kid. Normal. When you see two men with a small child, particularly if you see them regularly, so, you know, I think that the judgment around it is harsher as well, because we're so, we're so, we're so pre, our preconceptions are so strong around who should be the the carer of a child.
2: Sure, absolutely. And I, I remember in the early days when Georgia was born, and um, because very quick, Catherine um, lived with us for the ser- first six months of Georgia being born, and then when Hal was born, we moved in with her for the first six months, so that we were all together for that crazy, weird first part of having a baby where you don't know which way's up. Um, But then we went back to our separate houses, and we live around the corner from each other, but the kids have always gone between two houses, half the week with Catherine, half the week with us, and that's how we've always done it, because... It was very important that I, I didn't want to be just that dad that came around every couple of weekends and took them on holiday in the summer. And that, you know, I said I said to her, "If we're going to do it, we're going to do it equally. It's the only way that I want to parent." Um, so we've always done it like that. But I I can remember Cameron and I taking Georgia out when she was a baby, and if she was crying, the amount of times that women would come over and say, "Would you like me to to pick the baby up? Would you like Would you like some help?" Um, and it was always really interesting because I just thought that wouldn't happen if Catherine was out with Georgia and Georgia was crying, nobody would approach her and ask if you know they could they should hold the baby you know you know what I mean so and that was really interesting in the early in the early days to see how 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 as you say those preconceptions about whether or not you know men can can be well paternal in that way.
1: Yeah, and I, but I would actually, I I suppose ask a very personal question, and I and I'm sure that you did have fears, but did did you have moments where you felt, I don't have the skill set for this?
0: Sure. Yeah,
2: absolutely. We're and, a,
1: new a woman would too. I mean, it's not I I don't think.
2: It, it really and I and I still do, um, because that's parenting. You always think, am I getting this right? Am I doing it wrong? And 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 the fact is. You know, I remember Georgia being very, very young um, and the three of us went away. We went to Canada, uh, the four of us rather, with Georgia. The three parents and Georgia went away and we all ended up having to share a hotel room for one night, um, which we wouldn't normally have done. So the four of us were all in in the bedroom at night and Georgia wouldn't, she was crying and she wouldn't go to sleep. We all had very different ideas of what was wrong. And I thought that she was overtired and we should probably leave her in the in the cot. Um, Catherine thought that she had wind and Cameron thought she was hungry. And all of us were debating about what the right thing to do was and what we should do. And I was saying, no, just leave her. And she goes. go to Catherine was say, she needs to be winded and all this. And Cameron said, well, why don't we try feeding her? And if she's not hungry, she won't eat. And that won't be a problem. So of course, we, we, Catherine and I kind of rolled our eyes. Um, and of course, she drained her, her bottle. She was on bottles at that point and, uh, and went straight to sleep. And, and that was interesting because Cameron not being the biological parent, uh, in the beginning it was very hard to find, of course, we would say we are three equal parents, but, of course, it, was, it felt slightly different because Catherine and I were the biological parents and we didn't really know how to make that equal. And that was one of the first moments where we all kind of went, oh, right, he knew better in he, that instance, yeah. not always. Yeah. Sometimes Catherine knew better, sometimes I knew better. In that. But that's just being a parent. You you sort of figure it out as you go along.
1: How, how did the decision around who was going to be the biological parents come about? And what was the process in terms of getting to IVF? Was it, I, I don't think these decisions are ever easy, so I don't mean that in quite uh, such a simplistic fashion, but did you have any resistance? What was the process like, particularly back oh, yeah. then? Um,
2: well, the, the, by, the biological question was always interesting it was always going to be me because Catherine and I were friends and we'd been talking about it since before Cameron and I were together Mm -hmm. um and in fact we Cameron and I got together um before we started trying properly but it was something that for years Catherine and I had been having a conversation about so that was that never kind of came into question it never it was never an issue um and, and also I think it's very interesting. People tend to think, oh, well, if you're the biological parents, you're the real parents. But, of course, you look at any child that's been adopted or it, it doesn't work like that. Mm. You sort of think that way before you have children. But mm. once you're the other side, once you've got them, you know, Cameron, Catherine and I all love the children equally and mm. they love us equally. They don't differentiate between any of us. And that's what makes, makes the family whole, really, I suppose. Mm -hmm. what you were asking the second part of the question about did we have any resistance yeah we did and um we went to try IVF and the first doctor that we went to uh referred to me as the donor all the way through and talked to Catherine always and said that before he would even consider IVF for us I would have to have an HIV test and then we would need to wait six months uh, While well, my sperm was in quarantine, and then I would need to be retested, and then after that period, if if I was HIV negative, then that would be fine, and he would go ahead. And so, and that's what we ended up doing because he he wouldn't do it otherwise. But I said to him at the time, "But we could, you know, we could go and do it ourselves with a turkey baster, or we could go and have sex, or we could do any of this." This is what, and he said, "Yeah, you could, but if you want me to help you." This is what I insist. Uh, and then he started to talk about the statistics of gay men with HIV and all of this. And it was kind of shocking, really, because he was making a lot of assumptions about about me, I guess. Um, anyway, it didn't actually work with him. And we ended up going to a different IVF doctor who was a lot more, um, just a, a, <laughs> a lot less kind of prejudice, I think. And uh, and it worked first time with him. So I don't know, maybe we were in a better place mentally for it to happen. Who knows?
1: I think that is, is such a fundamental part of it. Female friends of mine, slight tangent, but who've had IVF and can't get pregnant through the IVF, then find they get pregnant naturally at home. And I think the pressure, mm. the mind-body connection, um, and I think that it sounds to me like that doctor was shaming you.
2: And also with Catherine, he kept telling her that she was old and that really she should be trying egg donation. She was 40, when we started talking about it, and she, in the end, said I would like to try with my own eggs, if that's possible, and, and she, that's what happened. She, We didn't need to use egg donation. So it was her eggs and my sperm, and it worked the way that we wanted
0: it to.
1: It's really difficult. When I was 40, I went to look into egg freezing because I wasn't mm. in a relationship, and I, I won't go into it now, but I had some quite difficult conversations with doctors, and what I learned to understand through talking to friends about it was that a lot of these doctors got into the process to help women who were infertile. But in a way, they didn't sign up for this new kind of thing of a 40-year-old woman wanting to delay her ability to get pregnant or co-parenting between same sexes. And I think that, you know, I mean, it may be different today because of all the work you've done, but you were a pioneer. I don't know if you know what the statistics were in this country or whether there are any statistics for uh, same-sex parenting, particularly with men at that time when you were starting. How many other people do you know had done it? I
2: don't know what the statistics were at the time, but what I do know is certainly when I was writing the column, because I looked into it, um, the amount of same-sex families in this country were doubling every year. Um, The the growth was huge. Um, So that was I think just it felt like things were starting to change it felt like and I think equal marriage and the fight for equal marriage had a lot to do with that Um, because suddenly our relationships were legitimized in that way
0: Mm -hmm. and it
2: felt like the next step was we will be allowed to be families now we will be allowed to have families Mm -hmm. in a way that I think there was a lot of I mean, I certainly got a lot of resistance from, funnily enough, mainly from my gay male friends when I said that I wanted to have kids. Of People kind of going, oh, I don't know if that's right and I'm not sure. And, you know, uh, know. I I got a lot of the arguments about it. And one of my friends um, in particular said, I just don't, I I think, you know, gay people, we are different and we make our own rules. And I, I understood what he meant from a political point of view. But he was kind of saying to me, you're, you're, you're trying to um, ape the heterosexual lifestyle and that's not what we are. We're queer and we're this. And I was like, well, actually, I think I'm doing the opposite. I think I'm showing that regardless of your sexuality, you should be able to have a family if you want to have a family. And that's where I think we've moved to. I think people realise that actually, apart from a few fundamental differences and some logistic differences, rather, um, having children for gay people is just as you know relentless and boring and mundane as it is for straight people a lot of the time you're doing the same stuff the same you know changing nappies and homework and school run and all of that kind of stuff your sexuality doesn't come into it the last thing you're thinking about when you're changing a nappy or teaching them times tables is who you're attracted to
1: well, also, I think that there's this kind of movement towards the individual. And so, um, there's, there's definitely some kind of like tribal campaigning going on at the moment that's really important that in order to make change and to create equal rights, people of a certain, um, tribe, whether that be to do with your sexual persuasion or the color of your skin, whatever it is, sometimes need to force through. But the outcome of it is that, um, there's a kind of really beautiful, development in terms of acceptance for people to be absolutely unique to them and no longer fit into the category so I I mean I felt shocked that um that your your you know your 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 tribe was saying to you that's not for us that that was a bit yeah. shocking for me but then back yeah. then I think that you know it, we weren't in this kind of like really deeply postmodern phase where sure. your individualism should be should be celebrated as much as possible you know yeah. planning for your
0: next trip elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen
1: In terms of your co-parenting, how how do you make it work?
2: I mean, you know, we're really lucky. We live in central London, so it's very cosmopolitan where we are, and um, and the kid's school is great. And I'm always asked if there's been any bullying. There hasn't. There's never been an issue because all their their classmates know Cameron and I because we're very involved in the school. So there's never been any issue there. Um, we just kind of you know get, just try and get on with. Our lives as best we can I mean I think for me it felt like there was a lot of pressure uh, in some respects to be the perfect parent because of our situation because what I didn't want and also having a, a, a public profile which was certainly higher when when my column was 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 being written um you know the last thing I wanted was for the Daily Mail to suddenly be going look at how you know the mess these men are making of parenting there was a there was sort of an added pressure to get it right because i was doing it so publicly i suppose um uh, that doesn't mean it's possible to be a perfect parent nobody is but i but i have always tried to go okay how do i what's the right way of going about this and it always comes back to well what works best for the kids what how's this going to work for them so we decided very early on before they could vocalize what worked for them that we would try and make that, but we would we, we try and have it that uh, Catherine would have them half the week and we would have them half the week. And in fact, that's the model that we've stuck with because it works. Um, and so she has them, we've slightly changed things around at the moment because of some work stuff. But usually, Catherine has them on a Monday and Tuesday, we have them on a Wednesday and Thursday, and then the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday we alternate.
0: Mm.
2: So it means that we each get one weekend out of every two. But we have set days during the week because routine is really important for kids. Um, It's obviously different in both houses, and we're probably slightly more relaxed with the amount of screen time that they have or whatever it is. But there are certain things that we try to keep the same. So Catherine Cam and I had a conversation early on about, well, how do you do bedtime, bath time, dinner, that whole bit of the evening? What do you do and what do we do and what works and what doesn't? And that's what we do in both houses. Just so that they know that they're winding down in the evening and, you know, they have something to eat, then they can have a bit of telly, then they have a bath, then we read them a story, then it's... And that sort of... It, it just creates some continuity. So things like that we, we would always try and do together. We try and go on holiday together when we can. We have family meals together. We spend Christmas together always and Easter and Mother's Day and Father's Day and all of those things we do as as a a, a, a group of five. Um, but we also have our own things. Catherine took them away this weekend for, for a short break. And, you know, we when we're allowed, we will take them on holiday, you know, that kind of thing.
1: I mean, it just sounds exceptionally healthy. I love the way that you're talking about communicating. And I think that um the listeners of this podcast will gain so much from it in whatever their setup is, actually. It's right. a really healthy parenting experience that you guys are having. You, you mentioned that there hasn't been any bullying, but I just wondered when you are out and about whether it be in and around London out of London or on holiday are there any times that you feel that it's unsafe to share your choices is there any times that you feel like actually you know what this is not a situation where we need to be open about this in order to keep us all safe
2: I don't think I've had any explicit any explicit thing happen I suppose maybe it's implicit sometimes and maybe that's part of the reason that Cam don't Hold hands. I don't know, we're not particularly hand holdy types of men. But um but yeah, I don't know. No, it doesn't it doesn't even occur to us anymore. I mean, you know, sometimes we walk down the street together as a family and and not so much now, but people would stare at us, but then that could well be because I'm on Coronation Street and people stare at me anyway. So you just never know. You never know why people are looking at you. Nobody has ever given us any kind of abuse. Nobody's given us a hard time. I've never had any of that so and also you know the world is changing. I have a lot of followers on Twitter, and I would certainly post a link to the column every week and you know what Twitter's like you know people will troll you about anything that you say. The weather's nice, and somebody will give you a hard time. But I can honestly say, I never got any bad responses from posting links to my to my column i never got any homophobic abuse i never got any of that stuff so so i feel like the world is changing
1: mm, that really mm. actually i was going to ask that earlier and completely forgot that is really phenomenal that you didn't yeah. get any um what are they called? No, no, no trolls no no trolls and and right so good i think um one of the things that they've been looking at i've been watching sex education season two and that they're, they're mm. one of the themes within the many themes is about the gay relationship and then being public with it And I, and I do wonder, and I, it's such a big conversation, but you know, whether or not the non handholding is to do with nature or nurture, like whether or not men actually have not had enough, um, visual signs that it's okay to do that from a young age. What it, I'm just, what would it look like in 10 years time? You know?
2: I don't know. And I do see a lot of younger gay men holding hands and I, I love it. It's great. And I hope that they're doing it because it just feels natural. Um, because if, if Cam and I were to do it, it would feel like we were making a statement. Yeah. It would feel like we were being defiant. And yeah, I've certainly done a lot of that in my life, but uh, that's why it doesn't feel quite so natural. And I, and I hope that, yes, of course, that it, it, it gets to the point where men just hold hands if they want to hold hands and it's not an issue. I mean, I hold hands with my son all the time, but then he's eight.
1: Yeah, I think that that's kind of like whether or not it's okay or not, society wise. I'm really curious to see what happens in terms of nurture, because obviously we learn so much about sex and love Mm. through the input of, of, well, first of all, the Bible started it and then movies and, you know, media in general and advertising. And as the shift happens, I just, I just would be really curious. I think that inherent in it, of course, you know, I've had a lot of boyfriends and some of them love to hold hands and some don't. And I like the ones that do want to the most. (laughs) But (laughs) like, like, I'm just, I'm, I'm really, let's check back in in 20 years and see whether, whether or not on a cellular level, on a tissue level, whether or not, um, men have moved away from the so called alpha you know and, and are able to be more in their feminine and intimate more in terms of in, in a same-sex relationship. Mm. Um, one of the things I'm really curious about there was a documentary on French television which suggested that um, children of same-sex uh, parents had a very strong capacity for analysis and, and and reflection because in a way they've had to cognitively um, digest and process their setup as different and I just wondered with Georgia and how whether or not you've noticed that at all whether or not the setups affected their cognitive or imaginative capabilities?
2: I'd, I have no way of knowing if that's the case. They are both incredibly bright and uh, thoughtful and challenging children. I mean, they question everything and they um, they are very happy to have opinions about things which often differ from ours, And I, and I love that. I don't know whether that's got anything to do with the fact that they have uh, Cameron and I as a same-sex uh, couple bringing them up with Catherine. W- one of the one of the things that I do think, and there are pros and cons to our situation. Of course, there are there are difficulties as well. But one of the things that I find really interesting about same-sex parenting is, traditionally and and globally, I would say a lot of the parenting roles will fall to either the mother or the father so and this is a massive generalization but i think it exists because it's it's fundamentally true that the women the mothers will take on the nurturing caring emotional stuff with the children if the child is sick yeah. or tends to do the cooking or whatever it is and and does all that stuff with the child whereas the father will do the practical stuff and the kind of you know teaching them to ride a bike or what you know, whatever it is. And it's much more the kind of qualities that are associated with men and masculinity. And so they are divided in that way. That doesn't necessarily mean that that is their strengths when you look at individual families. So it may be that the father's actually better when the child is sick. It may be that the mother is much better at some of the physical stuff but because of the way that the that society dictates that's just the way that it tends to fall whereas in a same sex relationship you don't have any of that and so what happens is is you tend to fall into your skill sets who is better at this and those things can change so sometimes if one of the kids is sick in the night cameron will get up with them and deal with it because in that moment, he's better at it, Mm. rather than the mum always does that, because that's her role. And so there's a lot of things that are very fluid in in the way that we bring the children up. And I think that's a really good thing. I think that's the way it should be. It it should, the things that we do with our children, and the way that we teach them should fall to our skill sets, and not just because of our gender, that men do this and women do that. And that's the way of the world. It doesn't that doesn't actually help. And so I think that's something great that we've been able to bring to, to bringing up our children.
1: And also it ties back into what we were chatting about earlier in terms of this kind of really beautiful movement towards focus on the individual and the uniqueness of human beings and letting sure. go of this kind of tribal div- – tribes are divisive. They're really important as well, but they yeah. can be divisive. And so even yeah. within what you're talking about, there's a, a more f- a focus on 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 someone's actual – you know uh, what they're the best at. You know, I think it's a really amazing yeah, and it, thing.
2: It, it can be really insipid the way that these things sort of creep in. the, the, the I, I saw a friend of mine yesterday, one of the uh, 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 male friend of mine who's got kids of about my children's age, and we were having a chat, and he said, "Oh, you know." I'm not getting on so well with my wife and she said that I'm driving her mad at the moment she she keeps saying to me oh, I wish you just get out of my kitchen and go somewhere else so I take the dog for a walk and get out and I thought god there's so much there to unpack but what is that dynamic G- get out of my kitchen like what 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 kind of a household thinks like that certainly not our household um and I find all that stuff really interesting that that it does feel like sometimes that's how those roles are just dictated without even realising. It's not something that's agreed. It's just something that's generally accepted.
1: Well, I and mean, It's a way to actually stop being intimate. In a funny way, when you put yourself into a role like that, it's like this is what I do. It means you don't need to communicate. It, it takes away the extra layer of intimacy that means that you might live moment to moment, really be in the present and like let the day unfold in the way that, that you both feel you know which is much yeah. better for your, for your mental health i um i think generally speaking if this movement in terms of you know focusing on on our individual skills really continues and and our choices and and, and who we are in life really continues we should end up to be a much healthier nation in terms of our mental health i um actually just want to touch on on that that the statistics around uh mental health for the lgbt community are really bad 52 yeah. percent are reported self-harm and that compared to 25 percent of heterosexual um young people and 44 percent of young lgbt people have considered suicide compared to 26 percent of heterosexual or non-trans young people and i just wondered if you could just talk a bit about i feel like um Uh, I mean, we understand why that is happening because of bullying and abuse. But what would you like to see change in terms of services and support for people who are um, considered to be alternative? Although, as we've said, it's not really an alternative choice.
2: I think all of these things come down to being able to express yourself and being able to be honest about who you are and what you're feeling. And that's one of the reasons that I mean certainly, in terms of um uh, the statistics for suicide um it, it's the biggest killer of men under the age of forty um not just gay men but men in general and that's because men are not encouraged to talk about their feelings and if if you add on top of that for for the LGBT community a layer of uh, of shame and um uh, you know not not feeling accepted and not being able to accept yourself for who you are, then it, it's going to cause huge problems um, in terms of mental health. So I think the the first step is education. The first step, it has to come from really early on. You know, children are not born prejudiced. Prejudice is learned behaviour. Children are generally very accepting. You know, I have a lot of trans friends and and my kids know them. As as trans people, they understand what trans means and they take that on board. It's only the world around them that in, imposes those kind of prejudices, mm-hmm. prejudices, and that comes later on. So I think we need to work really hard from uh, very, the very early years just to let children know that there is a, a wide world, and as you say, everybody is different. It's about the individual, mm-hmm. and and if people can be proud of who they are and not feel any shame around what they feel or what they think or the emotions or who they fall in love with or who they're attracted to, then then I think you're going to make great progress. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's obviously that's <laughs> that's the dream, but mm. getting there is a, you know, a very different prospect. But I think
1: education is the key. Yeah, uh, share it, education, really sharing honestly with at least one person in your life. We chatted about this before. I have this feeling with you, Charlie, that when you like deeply became who you really are that your life started to take off I feel like and I and I and I the reason I want to talk about it is because I'd like to encourage more people to do that because I think in a way the universe hears when we're true to ourselves and I would suggest that your career you had a great career but it really started to take off when you just kind of like We're like moving through all the stuff you didn't want to be and truly accepted yourself absolutely as who you are
2: yeah I think I think that's and that's possibly true for a lot of people but certainly for me I think um because I I mean I, I came out my family were very accepting I was very lucky I didn't have any problems in that respect but of course I still had all those internalized feelings of not wanting to be gay for such a long time and growing up as a gay child in a very straight world um, and feeling like there was something wrong, as all LGBT people of my generation, certainly, and before, hopefully not as we get older, but certainly my generation, we all had those feelings mm. because that was the world that we live in and it's still the world that we live in to some degree. I mean, you know, things have moved a lot, but of course we don't have, you know, that we don't have true equality there are still homophobic people many of them you know uh, so we've got a long way to go but but yes i i suppose the more i started to let go of that stuff and that just comes with age and time and wisdom really doesn't it you 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 just feel a lot more settled in in who you are and 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 what you're prepared to accept and not accept uh but yes i think and that and that's when Things started to happen more for me, I suppose. Mm. So yeah, I think that's probably right.
1: And you start to surround yourself with people who really love you for who you are. You've talked about your community and the people around you as a unit, you know, which then gives you strength. So I think you know, for anyone who is who who is struggling with some some feelings of being alternative, share about it and surround yourself with people who absolutely fundamentally accept you as who you are, you know. Mm. Um, We're running out of time, which I'm absolutely devastated about because it's been so. I literally could talk to you for hours. (laughs) I wondered whether or not you could just leave um, the listeners with a little bit of what your suggestions. So you've talked about education, but if people have listened to this and they actually want to go and do something to either support, um, you know, equal rights for. Uh, same-sex parenting or whether or not they just want to learn some more about the LGP community whatever where, where, where would you suggest people go and start looking?
2: Oh well I mean that's a huge question really people can there's so much that people can do I would always encourage people to get involved in any way they can um, in, in all sort in all human rights I mean for me intersectionality is the key I, I, I can bang on my drum as much as I want about LGBT rights but it's sort of useless if I'm not prepared to fight for women's rights at the same time you know it's all great to be thinking about black lives matter but are you thinking about disability you know these are the things we we all have rights and we the the dream is for true equality across the board. Mm. You can't have, well, I want equality for my tribe, but those tribes, well, they can sort themselves out. It doesn't work like that. You need to be able to work together. That's why allies are so important. And certainly the LGBT community wouldn't have got anywhere without straight allies, without, you know, black allies, without whatever it it is, you know. Uh, I think... I think that's the most important thing is that we all try and help each other. Mm. It's, it's the, the, the duty of the strong to protect the weak. Right. And I, and I really hold by that. I think it's, it's really important to help people that are less fortunate than us. Um, and that's why, you know, that Black Lives Matter at the moment is so important because, yes, we know that all lives matter, but we're not talking about all lives. We're talking about black lives which are in trouble at the moment. Mm. And if I can use, you know, my position as a white man with privilege mm. to shine a light on that, then why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't anybody? Mm. Um, and, I, and I think that's the key is that we should all do, – don't just be focused on stuff that makes – your life better be focused on what makes li- life better for everybody
1: mm. well also every time a campaign or or a kind of like push forwards to right-size situations that have been prejudiced happens so like the me too movement i would suggest that part of the reason that that lies matter feels that it can make a difference is because People thought that something, I mean, if you'd have said that Me Too would have had the impact that it did, people probably wouldn't have believed you. But because of mm-hmm. social media and because as individuals, we now have voices outside of what we're being fed by the media. And every yeah. time a campaign for a group of people that are considered other surges forward and changes the landscape, it sets another group free to think that they can have the same thing. So supporting yeah. supporting is is just key in that. And as Toni Morrison said, we rise by lifting others. And, I, and I'm sure that part of the reason that you shine so bright, Charlie, is because you have really dedicated your life to um, helping people. And um, Well,
2: I hope so, yes.
1: I feel very lucky to know you. Thank you so much. Oh,
2: thank you.
1: It's been beautiful listening to you. Thank you for coming on The Happy Vagina. Thank you
2: very much for having me. I've had a great time.